Well, I want to tell you a story uh, that lasts probably, I don't know, maybe 15 or more years at this point. Fifteen or so years ago, there was a mom in our congregation who came in contact with two Haitian kids out of the community here in Fort Lauderdale, and she was working at a clinic, and these kids would come into the clinic, and so she kind of got to know these kids, their situation, their family, and so forth. And together with another mom in this church, really those two families began to meet the needs of these kids, brought them into their house, helped them out in a variety of different ways, and over a not too distant or not too long period of time, these kids kind of became like family to them, and not just family to them, but these kids then became family to us, because they started coming here on Sunday. And they came to our children's ministries, and they came to faith in Christ in here, you know, and they went through our communicants class and became members of this church, our members of this church. It went all the way through our youth ministry, big time involved in the youth ministry, and as parts of our youth ministry, they traveled, literally, no kidding, all over the world, New Zealand, Holland, Poland, Berlin most recently, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, you know, I mean, just like all over the world where we send our youth ministry, and what they do is they take Evangelism Explosion, this program for how to share your faith in Christ, and they train overseas pastors and laypeople in how to do that. Well, when they got to their senior year, our director of student ministry said to me, he said, you know, it just occurred to me the other day that these two individuals are the most experienced leaders that we have going on the trip this year. It was awesome. It's an awesome story. But that's only part of the story. See, another part of the story happened right about the time that they were coming out of middle school and and going into high school, sort of that season of life when most children are possessed of the devil. Do you know that season? (laughs) You're, You're with me, right? Every kid is like that. Every kid. And they're just kids. And they were struggling. And so we kind of came aware of the fact that they were struggling. And so we started to build systems in around them to try to help them to succeed. One of the things we did is we called over to Westminster Academy and said, look, we want to take them out of the schools that they're in and we want to put them in WA. Is that a possibility? What can we do together to make that happen? And I remember talking to the head of school at that time, and you know, he's a friend of mine, and He said, Tom, we share your heart for these kids. Let's figure it out. Tell you what we'll do. For starters, we'll treat them like they're your kids, and we'll give them a 50% discount for starters. Then we'll work with you on, you know, uh, what does it cost to play basketball, and what does it cost to... There are all these other things that are part of a private school education that many of you are aware of, and they said, we'll work with you on all these different expenses so we can make this happen. Let's start with the premise it's going to happen, and then let's figure out how to make it happen. And I want to stop and pause and say, Westminster Academy was and is a huge part of this story. And what they were able to do to make it happen financially is probably the smallest thing that they did for these kids. Can't say enough good things. And some of you here today, you were part of that story. But that wasn't enough. See, the parents of these two children had long since died. They were living with their grandmother And things weren't going well, and it was a deteriorating kind of a home life situation. So we realized, look, what we really need to do is we need to get them out of grandma's home, and we need to, you know, find some homes for them. It was kind of one of those crossroads moments for us where we had to kind of say, okay, are we just going to say, well, you know, we'll pray for you, and then that's it, or are we actually going to do something? One of the things that I've discovered about I'll pray for you is that sometimes God comes and says, and I want then you to be the answer. You know, I'm going to answer the prayer, and I'm going to do it through you. You ever experience that? That's when you say, no, God, I meant for you to do it through somebody else. No, I'm going to do it through you. So we contacted Four Kids of South Florida, an organization that we believe in deeply, 
and they were awesome. They're a big part of the story. And with their help, we were able to jump through all the hoops of the legal system to get these kids out of grandma's house and, and into the foster care system, okay? That's a big deal. There's all kinds of benefits, health benefits, college tuition benefits. We're looking at the benefits and going, man, we, we just need to make this happen somehow. And it happened. And then we held a dinner. We went through our directory and culled out of it the names of people who either were already involved in the lives of these kids or we looked at and said, you know what, these guys could meaningfully help out. They might be the answer or maybe just part of the answer. And we held a dinner right here, had the tables right here, cleared out the chairs, you know, called it the gift. It's ironic to me that that was the name of the night. I mean, the idea behind it, obviously, was, hey, we want to give a gift to these kids, and we did want to give a gift to these kids, and we did give a gift to these kids, but as I look back on it now, we're the ones who got the gift. No question. So we set the tables, you know, we had nice little centerpieces, and somebody else did it, so it was really nice, and, and it was all dressed, you know, wrapped little presents as the centerpiece. It was just like it was beautiful, and Brian Haber made the dinner, and it was fantastic, and we had a slideshow presentation and kind of a video thing and pictures of them from the time they were kids until sort of that moment in their life, and I got up that night, and we had a presentation from four kids, and then I finally, I said, look, here's the ask, here's the bottom line, here's what we need from this group that was there that night. We need two families to set forward forward and say, we will take these kids in, one each, and you will shepherd them all the way through high school and beyond. And we need a whole network of other people who are willing to come around those families and come around those kids and say, hey, they're going to be my kids too. And every way that I can contribute to the cause, however that may be, count me in. I want to give but really receive the gift. And the bottom line is we had two families come forward and everybody there that night pretty much said, yeah, okay, man, I'm, I'm in on the deal. And, and last May, these two kids graduated from Westminster Academy. Right now, they're at college in their first year, so pray for them. I was told this week they want to go into law enforcement. I had mixed emotions because I speed everywhere I go. So <laughs> I told the first service, the last part of me to be sanctified is apparently my foot. Just, I'm in a hurry, man. Don't slow me down. So it'll be funny when they pull me over. Maybe not so much. But, but I want you to feel that my enthusiasm, not just for what's happened. I want you to feel my enthusiasm for what's going to happen. Not for the past, but for the future of these two intelligent, brilliant, beautiful, very gifted, very capable, really kind of funny kids. The difference that they're going to make. And I want you to recognize that it could have been different. God is the great reverser of fortunes. Now, I want to ask you, he's reversed their fortunes. How did he do it? He did it through some pretty regular folks, right? He did it through people like you. And he did it literally through some of you for those kids. God, by His Spirit, is in the business of reversing fortunes, and He's in the business of doing it through people who submit to His program of reversal.
It's like God reached down into that community and into that home and snatched those two kids out and said, look, I know what direction your life is going physically and spiritually. And by the way, that direction is not unique to them. It's not difficult to figure it out. It's not hard to see where it would have gone. But I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you over here. And I'm going to point you in this direction over here. And we're going to go in a very, very different direction for all of eternity. God is the great reverser of fortunes. You've got to hang on to that today. That's the theme for the day. And the theme also is that he reverses fortunes spiritually and physically through people like me and through people like you. Don't miss that. That's the catch. But here's the deal. You think you're going to give the gift, right? You're going to get the gift. You're the one who gets it. So anyway, last week we got together and we started out the Christmas season, and I said, you know, we're going to call this series God Gave, but look at the gift and cost of Christmas. And then I spent some time developing that, with that, that title with you because I wanted you to understand that we're not going to just talk about the gift of Jesus that God gave on that first Christmas and then the cost that God then paid through the life and through the death and through the burial and through the resurrection of Jesus that He might purchase us, that He might redeem us, that He might clean us, that He might forgive us, that He might call us into a relationship with Him, bring us into His family as His children, make us citizens of heaven, give all of the benefits which are inexhaustible of Christ, not just to him, but also to us. We're not just going to look at the great reversal that God created for each one of us through the gift of Christ and through the price that he paid through Jesus and through the very faith that he gives us by which we embrace that Savior. But having looked at that, we're going to stop every week and go, wow, Okay, so in light of that, God, what gift do you want me to give? What cost do you want me to pay? What need do you want me to meet? And not, I mean, I'm not talking about gifts to people who don't need you for, for you to get them anything. I'm talking about people who need, in some cases, just about everything. What genuine need of a genuinely needy person would you have me to meet this Christmas, this year? Let me nuance it. Whose future would you have for me to be a part of reversing spiritually and physically because God is the great reverser. He reverses fortunes. It's what He does. And He does it by His Spirit through regular folks like you and I. We pick up the Christmas story this morning exactly where we left it off last week, which if you missed it, is with a pregnant Mary. She is pregnant with the Son of the living God, and she has a really, truly bizarre explanation for this pregnancy. She's going with the story of virgin birth. I want you to put that on and walk around in it for a second. I need for you to understand this morning that that is the story of a crazy person. Is it not? I mean, unless it's true, that's nuts. And it sounds like a lie. Who's going to believe that? Would you have believed that? 
I don't think anybody believes it, quite frankly. At least not in Mary's life, at least not in Mary's day, and at least not initially. I I don't think anybody's buying the story, and I think that's part of what Luke is telling us right here out of the gate in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. Because he says this, he says, now at this time, meaning immediately after the conception of Jesus, Mary arose, and then Mary did something that no young lady in her culture would have done. She arose and went, by herself is the idea, in a hurry, so this is an urgent deal, to the hill country, to a city of Judah. Now, I say that no young lady in her day and age and culture and position would have done that because people like Mary, women like Mary, rarely even left their home. They definitely didn't take 70-mile journeys across the country by themselves. Luke is trying to communicate something to us, and I think what he's communicating is that the virgin birth story is not going so well with mom. It's not playing so well with dad. Joseph, you know, I mean, come on. And it might even start at some point to be seeping out into the community. You see, which unless it's true, it's a stonable offense. Punishable by death. Now, they didn't stone people in those days the way that they might have much earlier, but but it gives you a little bit of a feel, doesn't it? And can you imagine how fast that story would have traveled? I mean, the, the pregnancy itself is scandalous enough, but it's not actually, you know, something I did. I mean, it's God has done this to me. Little peasant Mary, little slave to the Roman Empire, little girl from the town of Nazareth, which even the Jews despised. And God has chosen you. Right. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went alone and in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why did she go there? Well, if you missed last week, because Elizabeth also is miraculously pregnant, and her miraculous pregnancy also was announced in advance to her or to her husband by an angel. And then on top of that, when the angel came to Mary and said, hey, good news, kind of, sort of, you're about to become pregnant with the son of the living God, he also said, and by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, also miraculously pregnant. It's pretty obvious that Mary went to their house because she realized pretty quick that, I mean, these are the only two people on the planet who are actually going to buy this thing. These are the only two people on the planet who are actually going to believe her, who are not going to say that she's nuts. So she entered the house of Zecharias, it says, and greeted Elizabeth, which was the custom of the day. You know, I mean, the traveler would greet the host. So she enters into the house, and she's the traveler. Elizabeth's the host. She greets the host. But here is the other part of the custom that maybe you don't know. The other part of the custom is then that at that point in the conversation, the lesser person in the relationship would then confer a blessing upon the greater person in the relationship, and it's not, you know, unclear as to who that would have been. Elizabeth is older. Elizabeth has different status, different position. Elizabeth is clearly the greater, at least culturally speaking, in this relationship. And so here comes Mary. She busts in the door. She is the traveler. Elizabeth is the host. She greets her host. And what you're expecting next, if you know the culture, is now she's going to bless Elizabeth. And she doesn't. She doesn't have a chance. 
Because God intervenes, and he begins the theme of reversal in this text. He begins turning things around. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, meaning Elizabeth's baby, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now she's going to deliver a message, and who is it going to be from? From God. She will speak for the Lord. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you. Mary's like, no, no, I'm supposed to say that. She's like, shh, shh, quiet. Blessed are you. Greater are you. More favored are you. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And you've got to feel that from Mary's heart and from her perspective for a second because that is a radically different message from the message that she fled from in Nazareth. Very different from the message of mom. Very different from the message of dad. Very different from the message of Joseph. Very different from the message of the villagers who did not call her blessed. They called her nuts and liar and whore. And even if they didn't have the temerity to say it, their stares, their finger pointing, their little whispers, their little murmurs, said it all. But when she gets to Elizabeth, or Elizabeth's house, it's all reversed, isn't it? It's all different. God sees Mary very differently then do some of the very significant voices in her life. Voice of mom, voice of dad, voice of fiance, voice of who else? School teachers, aunts, uncles, employers. It's fascinating. And maybe that's a good word today. You know, I think sometimes we follow God and people don't understand. People get a little confused. And we don't get the benefit of the doubt at times. And I don't know, sometimes we deserve criticism, but other times we're misunderstood and people question our character or our gifts or our abilities or our calling or our desires or our motivations or our intentions or our integrity or our whatever. And sometimes I think it's nice, perhaps when the Holy Spirit says, you know, God sees you a little differently. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice, and she said, blessed are you. Shh, don't say anything about me. Let me talk about you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If you're counting reversals, that's number one. And she goes on and says, how has it happened to me? She's marveling that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who has what? What is Elizabeth about to do? She's the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to tell Mary and you and me and anyone else who will listen what it is that God blesses. And it's faith. Blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken to her by the Lord. And how do we know that she believes? Well, faith shows up in action, doesn't it? It shows up in your life. God came to her through the angel, said, you're going to be pregnant with the Son of God, Holy Spirit. And what did she say? 
be it done to me according to your word. And in saying that, what did she give? She gave everything, even her body. It's a faith that sacrifices. It's a faith that is selfless. It's a faith that gives. It's a faith that does. And it's a faith that asks questions like, you know, hey, um, God, in light of what you've given, in light of what you've paid, in light of the need that you've met for me, whose fortunes do you want me to be a part of reversing? Elizabeth says, and blessed is she who has believed it's your faith that God blesses, that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary is so overwhelmed. She is so moved. She is so captured. She is so encouraged by this message after this long journey where she has fleed from Nazareth that she sings. And it's magnificent. Mary says, my soul, and I want you to take the next word and replace it with the word magnifies. My soul exalts, no, literally, my soul magnifies the Lord. There's a lot to learn from this girl. She's saying, I understand the purpose of my life, and not just of my life, but of your life, of everybody's life. And what is that exactly? She's saying, look, there is this sense in which my life, that God has created in every circumstance in it that he has governed over and handed to me, my life is to serve as a magnifying glass that is ever more focused on the Lord. The word magnifies is in a tense in the Greek language that indicates that it's not like something you do once. You go, okay, magnified God, check that off the list. We're done. I can go off and do what I want now. It continually magnifies. My life, my soul, my heart, my mind, my circumstances, my body, my everything that is me or attached to me has a purpose, and it is to magnify God. It is not to make much of me. It's to make much of Him. It's not to make me look bigger. It's to make Him look bigger. It's not, you know, to set its focus so that, you know, when everybody looks at me, what they see is me more clearly. It is to be used to focus on God so that through me, people can see Him more clearly. But you got to step back for a second and say, okay, so God has orchestrated and manufactured. He's created her soul. He's created her life just like He's done for you and I. Well, what is the nature and character then of this magnifying glass life that He's given to her? What marks it? What marks it is difficulty. What marks it is suffering. Though she is sane, she's going to be called nuts. Though she is truthful, she's called a liar. Though she is absolutely pure, she's called a whore. And not just for a little while, but really for the rest of her life. I mean, it's true that Elizabeth and Zechariah believe her, so let's count, shall we? That's two people. I'm not overwhelmed by that yet, are you? And they're 70 miles away from home. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Joseph, we'll see next week, after an angel convinces him, after a vision from God hits him, I mean, God has to intervene and say, you know, this is real, but Joseph believes her. Now we're up to three. Anyone else? Okay, here's the thing. 33 years later, after Jesus has risen from the dead... And all of his claims have been found true. 
Well, the Holy Spirit convinces what, relatively speaking, is a small group of people known as Christians, and they believe and rightly revere this woman, but let us never idealize her life. Most of the people for most of her life don't believe her and mark her as impure, which tells us, I think, something about suffering. This little girl is teaching us something. See, she can foresee that. That's not difficult to figure out. She's had 70 miles of walk to figure that out. Would have taken about half a mile, don't you think? And yet she's filled with an inexpressible joy. And she recognized that her life is to magnify God even in the midst of her suffering. She's teaching us that suffering is not something to just be endured and gotten through. Suffering instead is something to be embraced as an opportunity. In fact, one of our greatest opportunities to most clearly magnify God. To reveal to the people who watch us most uniquely when we suffer that our God is worthy of our love and devotion and worship and trust and obedience and all of these things, our reverence, our service, all of it, even during the tough times. Even during these times when somebody like Mary is being persecuted specifically because of her devotion to Christ, to the bringing forth of the gift of Christmas. And so Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard, she says, for the humble state of his bondservant. And then she drops kind of a head scratcher if you're playing along and thinking. She says, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And you want to stop and go, really, all generations? I mean, I know most, but really all, Mary? What about your generation? Because last I checked, it was finger pointing, it was staring, it was whispering, it was murmuring, it was horror. What about them? Okay, what about them? What do you think they call her now? Because I think that either from heaven or hell, right now, the word is blessed. As it is for every generation that has ever lived or ever will. And Mary sees that by faith in the midst of her suffering, and that becomes the cause of her rejoicing. And that too, I think, is a lesson from this girl. She cares more, it seems to me, about what people are going to think about her for all of eternity than she does about what people think about her in her own little hometown in the moment and in her day. And she's able to do that because she knows that one day her cause will be justified before everyone and forever, and that one day her name will be cleared before all generations who then bless her, and one day her reputation will be vindicated. She has committed herself to the cause of Christ, and she is willing to bear the indignity of it if that's what it takes. She's willing to pay the price of it if a price needs to be paid, and she's willing to do all of it looking ahead into eternity, knowing that God reverses the fortunes of all of us, and He reverses our sufferings and returns them to us in eternal glory and joy. There's motivation in that. There's impetus to get involved, I think, in that. And then so she just goes off with this song of reversals. 
We've already had one, right? Let's just follow it through. He says, or she says, for God has re- had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Well, that's reversal number two, by the way, if you're counting. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation, not just my generation, every generation, but not for everyone. It's very specific toward those who fear him, toward those who stand in reverential awe of him, toward those who recognize him for who he is and for what he's done, and who in light of that say things like, be it done to me according to your word, whatever that may be. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, she continues. He has scattered. It's all in the past tense. Did you notice that? He has scattered all those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. That's reversal number three for the accountants. He has brought down rulers from their throne. That's four. And has exalted those who were humble. That's five. And has filled the hungry with good things. That's six. And has sent away the rich, meaning the dishonest and unjust rich. Empty-handed, that's seven. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And you kind of want to, you know, kind of break into the narrative and go, okay, Mary, I hear what you're saying. Pat, pat on the head. Um, But when did he do this? Because you're talking about it like it's already been done. And I can begin naming people. I mean, I'll give you the name of a proud person and of a kind of a wicked, evil ruler person and of a... So... And that's true, isn't it? But she is pregnant with the Son of God. She is saying, the Lord who reverses everything has come. And he begins in that day, something that he continues today, he begins reversing everything. And how does he do it today? By his Spirit, through people like you and me. Physically, spiritually, and the program goes on until the Lord returns and culminates it all in a new heaven and in a new earth. What Mary is saying is that the advent of this Jesus, the conception of this Jesus, the birth of this Jesus, the coming of this Jesus changes absolutely everything and definitively. And it's not open to speculation. It's not a might, maybe, probably it will work out well. She's saying, no, Christ has come. It's as good as done. It's awesome. She totally gets it. The God of reversals has come. And He's come to do a work of reversal in every man, woman, and child who will submit to His authority, His rulership, and will receive the free gift of His salvation, and then through every man, woman, and child who does that. In other words, God wants to commission you to be an agent of reversal. And I think that happens when we wake up to the fact that our lives, carefully constructed and put together, mostly without our even thinking about it, have been carefully constructed and put together by the sovereign Lord Himself. He has handed you a magnifying glass, and He's standing here as the most beautiful thing, saying, focus on me. 
Forget about making much of you. You're not that much. Make much of me. You don't last. I do. Don't, don't, don't worry about making yourself bigger anymore. Make me bigger. Don't worry about everybody seeing you. Take yourself off the stage and use your life to let everyone see me. How? By helping reverse the spiritual and the physical fortunes of people. People like those two children that I told you about at the beginning of the message. Guys, it's not unclear where it would have gone. And it's not unclear where it is right now going. That's a beautiful thing that God calls, I think, every one of us some way, shape, or form to be a part of. So to that end, I want to invite David and Terry Fee to come on up, and they're going to talk to us a little bit about Four Kids of South Florida. And as I said last week, you know, every week during the Advent season, we're going to make a presentation like this. And I want to again tell you the purpose of making the presentation. The purpose of making the presentation is simply to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to speak, to kind of come alongside of you and to say, okay, remember the question? Because the question was, God, in light of what you've done for me, what, what do you want me to do? What genuine need of a genuinely needy person would you have me to be or meet or let me nuance it? Whose future would you have me to be a part of reversing. And what we're hoping is that as we make these presentations, that God will come to you and go, okay, there's your answer. That's it. So God bless.